Mr. Kenan, how are you doing, my man? I'm very well, very well. How are you? Good to hear. I'm, I'm pretty good, man. Chilling, nice day outside. Got good people around me, you know. I'm happy. But I wanted to make this podcast a little bit about you, and I wanted to just get your, I wanted to get you to explain why we have you on this podcast. A lot of people, they're not really familiar with you, although they are going to be familiar with you in the future. Well, thank you, guys. What? <laughs> <laughs> not a problem. Going to get from like uh, followers like three hundred to three thousand. <laughs> Inshallah, and for us too. Don't forget that subscribe and like this video. Yeah, fifty percent <laughs> of you unsubscribed, so stop watching and go subscribe. That's statistics. He's talking facts, but um, so yes, Kenan, tell us a little bit about why we have you on the podcast. Okay, so why you guys have me on the podcast? So I was start. I started out in property uh, back at university. I did a major. Uh, it was a. It was called Bachelor of Environments, and I majored in property. Mm-hmm. Um, under the umbrella of like Bachelor of Environments, you, you can do like architecture, civil engineering, and I wasn't really sure what to do. I, I initially thought, oh, civil engineering, because like, you know, that's what you're kind of fed in school. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. all right, go be a civil engineer. Yeah. Um, but I realized it wasn't for me. Um, I, I hate physics and, you know, that really complicated maths. Um, so I got into property and I really, really, really enjoyed it. And when I finished my degree, uh, I wanted to get into buyer's advocacy. Um, and But what, what a buyer's advocate is, is they're, they're a professional which represents the buyer. Uh, you've got... On on the selling side, you've got the um, you've got the homeowner, and you've got the agent. The real estate agent represents the uh, the seller, and the role of the real estate agent is to get the maximum price that they can on behalf of their vendor, which is which is the seller. Um, the buyer's advocate, on the other hand, what the buyer's advocate does, uh, what the buyer's advocate role is is to go out and represent the buyer so the buyer goes into the market and they're looking to get some help because the the scales are tipped in the seller's advantage because they've got someone experienced who is representing the seller whereas the buyer's on their own and they've got no support Mm -hmm. so it's a growing field uh in australia okay it's it's in 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 the u.s for example everyone would have uh, a, a buyer's agent to represent him. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, like the statistic is, it's less than 5%. Yeah. Of so most buyers go out and venture into the market alone. Yeah, because it's a massive investment house. You know? If you don't have an expert beside you when you're making a decision, it's going to be a long one for you, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge financial risk. 100%. And, <coughs> and like... Buying buying property is one of the largest and most important financial decisions that you're going to make, and it's so important that you get it right and you have the right support or skills to go out and get the decision right. Because you know where do you you know where do you even start? Like how do you like we're not taught this knowledge in school? Like how to go out and you know what's the right approach to going out and buying the right property? Because yeah, it's like there's so many moving pieces to consider, and it's and it's hard to hard to know where to start. And a lot of people feel overwhelmed at the start of the process. Mm. Like there's so many questions, like what you could, what location to buy into. You know, should I buy an apartment? Should I buy a house? Mm. Um, so yeah, so my role is to help the buyer. Yep. 
Um, in my sort of experience, so I've been working as a buyer's advocate for seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, straight out of uni into the role, um, I worked for a small uh, agency and the agency was a little bit different to your regular sort of buyer's agency. We're a bit, it was a bit more of a boutique, mm. um, boutique agency. Um, and we kind of specialised in buying, you know, good quality properties. And we were more about just finding the right property for the right, right person. Tell us the right, the price range. Cause you know, when we're looking at it, we're yeah. like, okay, it's good <laughs> quality. quality. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. I think um, the, the price, f- like from like my experience, the price range varies quite quite a bit. So, you know, I've bought properties which are about, you know, 300 to 400K on the bottom end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I've gone out and bought, you know, a $5 million property in Turak. So yeah, there you go. Is it, it's How a, it's are a the wa- places in Turak? Because we hear it, but we've never walked <laughs> into it. That's, that's a good question. Like I've kind of become almost desensitized to oh it because as in like like when you go out because i inspect like my my day-to-day is like going out and inspecting properties mm. and at the start i'm like whoa this is awesome <laughs> right and you know you'd go out and see so many properties but then like when i carry out due diligence on a property and i get the builder through to assess the structure yeah you realize that you know, with every property that you look at, that there's issues. And normally, like for more expensive properties, you realise that the, the issues can be a lot more costly. Definitely. So so it's like you go through and you're like, oh, like I'm looking at, at the lens like, oh, you know, there might be a you know potential balcony leak or it could be a structural issue. Mm. Or for example, like uh, the, one, the one I bought in Turak, it had a it had an um, underground basement. Mm. And, you know, if an underground basement, if there's an issue with the underground basement, that's a potential cost, like a, a few hundred thousand dollars in there. If there's a, if there's an issue with go. the basement, like with waterproofing or something like that. So if you don't know, you don't know, man. It's going to creep up on you in the future. Yeah, it's like, it's awesome. Like, oh, who, who would love, like, I would love an underground <laughs> yeah, basement. Bro. Like, yeah, have, have all the boys <laughs> over. Amazing, yeah. I'm just thinking, get us walking through. Oh, it's a tennis court. Oh, it's just a swimming pool. Oh, it's just this. Oh, it's just that. I'm like, well, come on, man. It's like, what do you have an underground basement for? <laughs> I'm just yeah. thinking, yeah, yeah. Bro, what, is it, what, what even is a basement, bro? What are you in America? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, there you go. But, um, yeah, it's like, uh, but also, like, you kind of get desensitized to it a little bit. Like, you go through... So many nice properties, and then like when you go through, you know, a really good property on a normal day, it's just like you become kind of numb to it. So yeah, because you see it so often as well. Yeah, it definitely. Um, so in my experience, I've helped hundreds of buyers purchase around inner Melbourne, um, and ranging from you know three hundred k to five mil, and every single different type of property, whether yeah. it be like a an ap- like an older style apartment, or you know, it might be a townhouse or a house. You know, in reservoir, like yep. mm. I've covered, I've covered pretty much everything. How about now? Because that's obviously your experience. But then, what are you kind of focusing on now, so mm-hmm. the audience gets to know and they contact you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, <inshallah. laughs> so I've started. Uh, so I think um, six and a half years of being an advocate, I've started up my own buyers agency. So where I sort of take one-on-one, one-on-one clients. Um, I've. It's uh, it's more about. The agency is a little bit more of a side um, side project for me. Like it's kind of on the it's there, it's there for if I want to help uh, if people need that one on one support. Um, but m- I realize like I realize that my time's kind of limited as well. 
Like I can only service, say, you know, maybe 10 or 15 people in a year. Oh, well. I want to I wanna make a bit more of a broader impact and, you know, get 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 uh, get buyers to get buyers to have that support and impact a lot more people. Mm. So I've created another another project called Property Skills, which we can get into a little bit <laughs> a little bit later on. Use our promo code. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I'm, I'm I'm thinking about this now. Mm. I want to just clarify everything, just so also mm. like the people in the audience know. So whenever a person is looking to buy a house, they don't know where to start. They've never done this before, or even if they just like they're unsure, they're not really happy about decisions they've made in the past. They come to somebody like you, for example, a buyer's advocate, and they go, "Listen, I've made mistakes, or I'm first time buying, or, or look, I'm just making sure. I just want to make sure 100 percent that I get all my bells and whistles taken care of." So they come to you, and then you go, "Listen, let's go." So do you walk through the process? Out, like for example, you're saying ten clients a year, fifteen clients a year. That sounds like you're going through a lot of houses through each with each client. So you're making sure that you kind of like you covered all facets of it. Absolutely. Um, there's two there's two main services of a buyer's advocate traditionally in Melbourne. Mm. Um, there's the full service where you go into helping helping the client from the from the beginning. So it's kind of developing a little bit of a brief. So working out what the goals are. Um, of that particular client and what they want to achieve and what their budget might be. And it might be, for example, I'm looking after a client who's looking to buy in Brunswick and Brunswick East and they've got 1.5 mil to spend and they like older, <laughs> they like, they like older, older period homes, for example. Mm. Uh, I'd get that brief and I'd be like, okay, firstly, this is realistic um, in the current market. Or it might be not realistic and we need to consider areas a little bit further out, like Coburg and, you know, Thornbury, for example. Mm. And from there, I'd like to go out and inspect a few properties with the client just to get a little bit of a better uh, understanding and handle of what they're after and what their preferences are. And they can also get a sense and feel for what I look for in a property as well. Mm. Um, and then the client kind of, from there gets a little bit removed from the process. I mean, I, I'm sort of in the field calling up agents and working out, okay, you know, what's coming up on the market, uh, you know, what's coming up on a pre-market basis. Mm. So all, so I get access to everything that's coming up in the pipeline. So I'm ahead of, I'm ahead of the regular, regular buy in the market. I'm already mm. across what's going to be coming up in the market. Yeah. So I've got a little bit of an advantage there. Yep. Also I've, I've, um, I get access to off-market properties, so properties which are not advertised on realestate.com.au, yeah. um, and an owner might be, an owner might decide to okay, I'm, I want to sell my property privately. Well, I need the right price, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. The problem with, like, I feel with the problem with off-off-market properties, like a buyer gets excited, ooh, it's it's off-market. Uh, must be good, yeah. It must be that. good. And sometimes, like the agents, you you might get like an email from an agent saying, "Oh, you know, there's an off-market property coming up," and you go, "Ooh, it's off-market." Mm. But I find, <coughs> I find, probably eighty-five percent of the time, like off-market properties aren't really that good. Okay. Either the owner wants too much, mm. so you know they're asking prices above what the property's worth. Uh, the property's not good quality, so it's not even a good quality property to begin with. Or the agent feels like they can get a better price um, off market. 
than if I were to put it to the public market. So, so yeah, the large majority of off-market properties. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't recommend off-market? Like if some other people are coming and giving advice to people looking for homes and they suggest you should look in the off-market, you wouldn't recommend? Not, so that 15%, so that 15%, sometimes they can be excellent buying opportunities. And to get to get access to those off-market properties, you need to have a relationship with a few real estate agents in the area. Mm. And because I kind of transact on a week-by-week basis with the real estate agent, I know, I know exactly what's coming up in the pipeline. I know what's off-market and what might be pre-market. And my conversation with the agent is a little bit different to a regular, you know, a regular customer or a regular buyer in the mm. market. You know, the agents, they're trained and they're very uh, scripted in terms of okay. how they deal with their vendor mm. and how they deal with buyers. Like, they work with scripts and dialogues and it's all, it's all like... Uh, they're all trained to to keep it to keep it consistent. <laughs> There's a whole thing when a real estate agent sells a house. It's called conditioning, and it's where a real estate agent will try and first get the listing. So once I've secured the listing, their process from there is to try and lower the owner's expectations as much as possible throughout the campaign. Yeah, and so their role is to try and lower the owner's expectations. And then they can over deliver on the result, and that's how they. Mm. When every when when the when the uh, when the owners like, you know, I go through this emotional roller coaster of like, oh shit, you know, I thought my property was worth you know a million bucks, and the agents are telling me there's only you know twenty people through, and interest is not good, and you know the owner just lowers and lowers and lowers their expectations, wow. and then. The agent then comes in and, you know, they over-deliver. Oh, shit. The agent is the hero all of a sudden. Yeah. And that's how, and normally that's how the agent then gets gets new leads and new business. You know, they go out they go out and have an auction and, you know, they have a really good result. Other people or buyers in the market, oh, this agent's really good. They've, you know, property was quoted between, you know, 800 to 900 and they've sold it for, you know, two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars above reserve. Yeah. But whenever I see that, I'm like, it's so far off. Like your role should have been like, if it's five hundred thousand dollars above reserve, like the property, like the owner's expectations should should be a bit higher because mm. you know you've told them that the property is worth this much. Mm. So that's that's techie, yeah. man. That's I tech. guess it's all about the agents' like reputation as well. So then those buyers recommend it for other people. Oh yeah, he was actually good. He got mm. really good price and mm. it's yeah. all psychology tricks. It remind me of this. Sorry, sorry. There you go. No, 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 no. Just remind me, I was going to say, remind me of, you know, those telecommunications guys don't deviate from the script. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. deviate from the script, man. But Absolutely. Yeah. And coming back to the scripts, like the, the, the agent would have a script for dealing with a buyer and the script would be like, look, you know, we've got two to three parties interested. We're quoting eight hundred to $900,000. It seems, you know, realistic or something like along the lines of along the lines of that. Mm. The agent will never tell you that there's no interest in a property. There's always a few people interested because, you know, if it, if the agent says there's no interest, then you're like, oh shit, is there a problem in the background? Mm. It freaks yeah. out the buyer. And at the same time, the agent doesn't want to tell you there's you know six seven people interested because then you'll be like, oh shit, I don't have a chance at this. Yep. So it's always, t- it's always yeah, two to three. Right. It's always two to three buyers which are interested, and the buyer kind of feels like they have a shot. Mm. They go, they go out on this journey, and they're like, 
you know, the pro- they look at the quoted range of, you know, properties quoted between 800 to 900. I'll just add 10% and that should be about the mark. That's it, like, that's not the right, that's not the right approach to go out and, you know, look, mm. look at, assess a property's value. Well, you said that only like 5% of people have bias advocates. So that means 95% of the market <laughs> don't. And a lot of times people are inexperienced, first time buyers. What are some common mistakes you see people making that are like first time getting into the field, or even experienced buyers? What are some common mistakes you see in that? Like I see so many mistakes that buyers make. Like it's it's so common to make a mistake, especially when you're not experienced and you're going out on the journey alone like i can maybe i can touch on a few examples um there was so there was one i was looking at an apartment in collingwood for example it's in a small complex of about you know 15 15 or so apartments and the property had east facing views out out to the dandenong region and it's quite you know quite nice and it was it was uh it was probably worth about say seven seven hundred and fifty k and so what happened was like we ended up scratching, you know, we, sc- we ended up scratching that particular property because, because of future planning risk. What that means was directly in front of the property, there was a, um, it was like an old warehouse and looking into the zones and overlays, which is like what the council potentially allows for the use of that, the future use of that particular property the height limit was, you know, 10 or 12 stories. And it was just a matter of time when this particular property Blocked was going up. to get developed. So, so to, um, I think there was a, like a planning application made on the property, which signaled right. to the owner, shit, I need, to, I need to sell this property before, uh, you know, before people find out and before it gets developed. Because yeah. once it gets developed, suddenly you've got... <coughs> Suddenly, you've got um, over sh- like potential overshadowing, and you know your views are completely blocked mm. out. And so, this sort of so the seller managed to get out of that early before, and another buyer's gone in, and you know they didn't carry out their proper due diligence and assess the planning the planning situation, working out what's happening in the surrounding environment, and they've gone in and made a mistake. So they've gone in, they've purchased. You know, they've purchased that particular apartment. Then, I think it's been about two years um, for the construction of a new project, which is like twelve stories high. You know, un- like five levels of underground basement, and it's just been such a headache for the current tenants inside that particular property. Um, so previously, the property I think was getting like six hundred and fifty dollars a week in rent, and now. Because of the construction, the owners would ha- would then need to reduce the rent, so like by give them a discount of like a hundred or one hundred fifty dollars a week, and you know the property sits vacant as well for a couple of months, <coughs> um, and and now suddenly you know you've got no views out mm-hmm. of your apartment. So that's one. That's just one plan. That's just just just, just a planning mistake. Then the due diligence process is like different. Mm-hmm. Um, different aspects which you need to kind of touch on there's like planning there's price there's the contract and then there's like the building components so there's all these little different avenues you need to check off and that's outside of the actual apartment 
So sometimes you go and you look at that palm, you're like, I like it. But then now you're looking at the view and the other side, which you don't yeah, even look external at. External factors, yeah. Yeah. So now, yeah, so now it's been completely, it's under, still under construction at the moment. Mm. And it's just like wow. the owner's lost. Like they've purchased purchased it for, say, 750 Now it's probably knocked back 50K off Damn. off the value of the of the apartment. Do you see people like make the mistake of maybe jumping into the real estate market too early? Because a lot of young people, for example, we might get excited. Hey, we can do 5%. Let's jump into a 600K place, you know, with... 30k or something so it's like do you see mistakes maybe we're jumping in too early buying a bigger or doing like a loan 15 year 20 year instead of a 30 year do you see those kind of mistakes happen quite frequently or is it more just issues within the property 100 percent. i think i think it's a combination of both and i think like fomo is a real thing that <laughs> yeah. people that people feel yeah. and it's kind of like you've got the media on the one side you know, pushing out our oh, property prices are increasing, you know, 10, 20%. And then you're in this position and you're just like, shit, I need to get, my, I need to get myself sorted and I need to get into the market. Mm. And what sometimes can happen is a buyer just rushes into the market. And one, one avenue is they don't carry out the proper due diligence. But the other avenue is they might not even be ready to, ready to actually buy. Mm. They might be in a position where financially they're not ready or they just, you know, they haven't properly considered uh, what type of, you know, if they should go out and buy a home first mm. or if they should go out and buy an investment first. Yeah. Or they stretch themselves, which is often the case when whenever whenever someone feels FOMO. Yeah. They go out and, you know, they stretch themselves financially, they buy property and then they realise like, damn, like I just got myself into, you know, a huge load of debt. And maybe the property's not not that good quality, and they realise, oh, you know, the mortgage, um, the mortgage payments might be slightly creeping up, and suddenly they're in financial hardship and stress, and that mm. causes, you know, it's not only the financial stress, it's also like the emotional stress of mm. like, you know, you might be, you're like, you know, you're you're in this, you know, really bad position. So, it's very, com it's so yeah, common, no, no, it's no, so common. So. Um, and just to touch on what you were saying, like. Um, making that decision whether or not you should actually jump into the property market or just rent for a bit. Would you recommend for someone like, for, say, for example, us, like we don't have the dosh yet to actually purchase a home or, oh, I'm speaking for myself, and, I, don't and me. <laughs> I, don't have the, I don't have the job to kind of like support consistent payments on, for example, a halal mortgage. Don't forget halal, but, <laughs> but yeah, so, so say, say I don't have that sort of stuff. Would you recommend renting or is there another way you reckon? Hundred percent. I think uh, I think renting is a. I think it's a stigma or like a um, a belief shifted down from our parents and <laughs> that type mm. of generations. Like renting's bad. Renting's not a good idea. Dead money. Yeah, renting's dead money. Um, but like I feel renting can can be like a lot better than buying for some people. It just depends on their sort of individual circumstances. Like if you're not ready to buy just yet. Renting can be a great strategy to to start off with. Like you go out and rent, and you can get a the, the advantages of renting is like you can go out and get a feel for a you know if you want to live in the inner city and you can't really afford it, you can get you know you can rent in a location which better suits your you know better suits your needs and lifestyle. Um, and also you can get like you can get a better feel for the location that you're buying in. Like if you want to buy in a particular area, you can rent. You can try it out and rent. Rent first, um, and renting is really good for the short term, 
um, obviously the end goal would be, you know, to eventually purchase um, a house down the track mm. or, or a property down the track. Um, but yeah, I feel also there's another sort of not misconception, but with renting, well, it was, it was a point about renting and like people are a bit hesitant to rent because it affects people's borrowing capacity. Uh, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So when you go out and you go, go out and you get a loan, for example, uh, people, people think, oh, you know, I shouldn't go out and rent because suddenly my borrowing capacity is going to potentially drop. So there's a hesitation there to go out and rent. But actually, when the lender looks at your application, and if you're looking to, to go out and buy a home, for example, um, they take into consideration that that rental expense is going to go away, mm. so you can actually afford to borrow more. Mm. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I like how you said renting is short-term, because then it's like focused, okay, this is just for my time and situation right now. But I know I have a lot of young friends who say the same things like, Maybe because their parents didn't tell them the, the importance, like you said, with habits. But it's like, I don't mind renting for the rest of my life. You know, I know it's like the Australian dream to own a house. But why do you think it's important for us to own a property? You know, and obviously, like you said, the prices are going up. So equity and stuff like that and assets. But why is it important to get into the market? I think everyone should aspire to own, own their own place um, and work, work towards that as a, as a, as a, as a long-term uh, long-term thing that's it's kind of like my belief like there's other people who believes like you know they're okay with renting forever mm. and but like I, I kind of feel like everyone should aspire to one day own their own home um, but the path the path to owning your own home is a little bit different uh, a little bit different to for everyone so mm. um, I feel uh, yeah I feel renting can be a good good sort of uh, like a good start um, and then eventually kind of work towards eventually owning your own home. It could be you start off with a investment property at the start and you build a little bit of equity in the meantime and then you can upscale to a, to a home down the track, for example. Mm. So, so I, w I wanted to just touch on what you were just saying now. So there's this new concept. I don't know if it's new or we've just been recently exposed to it, rent investing. Yep. Yeah. Um, I just want to get you to explain it a little bit and then just tell us, whether or not you do or don't recommend it. So the concept of rent vesting is a recent, it's fairly recent, it's a recent phenomena in like the, the real estate industry, mainly due to prices getting, like a lot of buyers getting outpriced um, in the market. So traditionally, you know, for example, in Brunswick or Brunswick East, maybe 10, 10 15 years ago would have been maybe 700 or 800K. Now that's doubled in 10 years. So now that, that particular buyer may have grew up in Brunswick and really wanted to be in Brunswick, but now they can't go out and afford to live in Brunswick. Mm. So what's their, what's their alternative? The alternative for them is to potentially rent in that area which they want to be in. So like Brunswick or Brunswick East, I really like that inner city lifestyle. But they can only afford to spend, say... $800,000. So, so what they go, go and do is they rent in the location that they want to live in mm. and use the remainder of the funds to go out and buy an investment property. So they get all the advantages of having an investment property under their, under their belt, 
while at the same time enjoying all the benefits of living in a particular location that they want to they want to be in. So, so for example, yeah, um, this person wants to live, for example, in Brunswick, and you're saying they rent that property, and then they buy an investment home. The investment home would usually be like far out from the city. Yeah, would it be like something like, for example, a Melton or you know, like a back of Smash, where they can kind of get money for fundage from that and then they can go into the rent that they're paying cons- currently for the thing and usually often do you see profit within the the, the investment property and the renting because you know you kind of like you have two different funds so basically mm-hmm. for example now you're spending 3k on rent a month but you're making three and a half mm-hmm. off the investment property mm-hmm. like um yeah, yeah. I, I get, yeah, I, get you what you're saying. I get what you're saying so not like the the difference is uh the difference depends like it depends on the type of investment you buy and what your cash flow position is mm. like what cash flow looks at is what your mortgage payments are and then all the expenses related to the property and then looking at what the rental income is and balancing it out and so over a 12 month period you need to look at what your um, net cash flow position is. Mm. So probably 80, 80% of properties produce a negative uh, cash flow. So the owner is out of pocket, for example. It's paying off the, when you're paying it off the house. Yeah, so, so the, majority, the majority of the loan um, is serviced by the rent, but you're also a little bit out of pocket yourself. Mm. Um, and that's where the concept of negative gearing comes in is that particular loss that you make on the property. So if you make, if you lose say three, three to $5,000 a year, um, off, uh, off your cash flow, you can claim that loss as part of your, uh, taxable income. So say for example, you're making $70,000 a year. And you make a five thousand dollar loss mm. from the cash flow on the on your investment property, you can use that five thousand dollar loss to offset it against your income. So instead of getting taxed at seventy thousand dollars, you get taxed at sixty five thousand dollars. Okay. How about if you want to put more? Like for example, I get paid seventy. I want to put fifteen k into my house. Would that also do the same thing? So it's like a kind of a way to minimize the amount of tax you pay. Uh, as in putting more towards uh, the house like for example your mortgage is two thousand a month i want to put three thousand just mm-hmm. to pay it off quicker mm-hmm. would that help towards negative gearing and my tax uh it if you have uh that's a good question I, i'd need to look at i'd need to look at the <laughs> i'd need to look at the numbers and and how it works but um like what a lot of people with high incomes they go out and they buy several properties and they're all making a loss but you might be thinking like why would I own a property if it's making, you know, a f- you know, five like some cases might be a five thousand dollar or ten thousand dollar loss. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's costing me money to hold it, why would I own it? The the thinking behind it is that the appreciation in value offsets the loss that you make in the property. Should you be calling it a loss, or is there like a better word, maybe like investing into it? Because you yeah. are investing more money, so then it comes, like, in the end, you're going to get yeah. paid from it. So you're kind of investing, <coughs> so then long-term, you own it. Yeah, yeah, e- exactly, exactly. Because so the word loss, I'm like, 
then you're like losing money, yeah. but you're technically buying off your house quicker. So it's a uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say for example, because like over a thirty year, let's uh, let's take a t- typical loan of say thirty years, right? Mm. And you're out of pocket, like out of pocket, to say two thousand dollars a year, right? Over a thirty year period, you know, multiply about two thousand dollars by thirty years, and that's six sixty k, like total out of pocket. Um, the rent is major- uh, it, the rent component is servicing the majority of the loan. So to by the, by the end of the 30 years, you'd have completely paid off your loan. And then once you've completely paid off your loan, then you've got an income stream uh, from the from the property that you... Losing the profit. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so now now it's in terms of your cash flow, the, the property might be bringing in, say, $400 a week and you've completely paid off off that loan mm. so you've got a you've got a sort of positive cash flow of say 15 grand a year yeah um but also what people need to sort of keep in mind of is also to couple like the capital appreciation of a property not all properties appreciate in value um a lot of people uh got have that sort of thinking about all properties appreciate in value and that's just not like while it's been the case in the past over the past sort of 20 to 30 years mainly because of interest rates becoming more more and more cheaper and credit being a lot more easily accessible and available. Mm. Um, like back in the 90s, for example, interest rates were at 15%. Damn. 15 to 20%. So you can imagine like, I, I hear the stories of like my mum and dad and saying like interest rates were like 15% yeah. and, Hard you know. To get loans the houses like were like 10K, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about now, bro. I was like, if I get Centrelink payments for the next, you know, I just add it all together, I would have had about ten houses by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's a bit, it's a little bit like we've also had our pop, like it's simultaneously, like with credit becoming a lot cheaper, we've also simultaneously had uh, our population increase. So they've mm. kind of worked worked mm. together to lift values over the past, you know, okay. 20, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Because um, now you're talking about investments and what appreciates, what is something that is more likely to appreciate? Is it a house, apartment, unit? Is it location? Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, this comes back down to. That's okay. This maybe we'll he asked right. the question. He doesn't want the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so this comes back down to what I call scarcity. Yep. So. Scarcity is like a concept where if you can increase the supply of a particular property type in a location, as you increase supply, the price goes down or it has a a pushing effect on on prices, if that makes sense. So if you look at an apartment, for example, I'd say like a newer style apartment in the CBD, you can fairly easily increase the supply of new apartments that increase of supply has a downward pressure on values but then you might be thinking okay so a house is you know a house would obviously be the better bet to Mm. um if you want uh if you want sort of that capital growth or capital appreciation Mm. but again that's it's not always the case like you can look at areas like on the suburbs and if like like on the fringes yep. where it could be like a new housing estate yep. and they've got, you know, 10,000 lots, mm, which yep. which they're releasing. And 
because of because it doesn't have that sort of scarcity value, like the like the values, yeah, yeah they just kind of yeah, they kind of just sit sit where they are. If that makes sense. Yeah, I was thinking like for example, say somebody was like they wanted to sell the house. Now they've seen the news, yeah. And they've kind of gone, oh my God, like if I don't sell this ASAP, like I'm not going to be able to get this much money ever for my house. And then they see everybody around them. You can see the the, the signs going up, auction, auction, auction. You know, you're like, you, you, at least in the area, there's about 15 houses being sold. That Does that limit the amount of profit you're going to end up getting from your house? Because, for example, that scarcity module mm-hmm. you're talking about? Yeah, so coming back to like, Coming back to scarcity and, you know, the type of property that you put up for sale, like you could be in, let's, t- let's take for example a suburb out in Mickleham, right? Mm-hmm. Like in those areas, traditionally like people are a bit, a uh, uh, bit more of a working class suburb. Mm. Like those areas, like if there's a recession or whatever, like those areas normally get affected yep. at the start. And so... Value like people can lose their jobs, and that's where areas get hit like the first. Yeah. Whenever you have like a scarce property, for example, like I find if the property has good scarcity value and it's a good quality property in a good quality location, mm. then even during like market downturns, like it provides a little bit of resilience. Uh, in the sense, like you can get you can like it always perform a little bit better than. You know, property which doesn't, which lacks the scarcity value. I know what you mean. So, like, for example, yeah, um, this was not re- as recent as it used to be. But for me, it was all, it was like news. But Chuganina, like that area when it was, um, there was an initial growth and influx of people. But back in the day, it was a desert, basically, yeah. yeah. I remember when I grew up, yeah. I used to go to Altaka College. It was like a desert. There was nothing there. It was like dry land. Um, now, all we see is just properties, just everything's getting flown up. Like, for example, for us, I'll leave. You're eager to say yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. for it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was going to say, like, like, with a lot of these new housing estates getting built, like, out in the fringe suburbs, like, a lot of them are getting built so quickly. And, like, the structural quality of these homes, like, I don't know if, like, I don't know how long, uh, what the longevity of these yeah. type, mm. type of homes. Is this yeah. house and land packages or just in general, the hou- all the houses? Just generally speaking, like sort of if you look at the fringe, fringe suburbs and you look at your sort of volume builders, mm. like the volume builders, they're operating on margins. Like they're like, and their margins are very like small. Yeah. So they'd go out and the, the home would be of the cheapest quality, like in terms of the fixtures and fittings. And while it might look good initially, like when once it's newly constructed, five years down down into your ownership, you've got all these, like, issues and, you know, deterioration in the property and the property's, like, yeah. not as good as, as what it used to seem. That's where Kinan comes in, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but coming back to... Maybe we can touch on, like, whether it's whether or not it's better buying land or buying an okay. established yeah. established property. Yeah. Um, there's, there's pros and cons with... With each, whichever um, approach you take. Um, Like, for example, the advantages of buying land is you can get into the market a little bit sooner. Um, It's it's more affordable. It gives you time to, you know, save up a bit more money so you can afford the build. Uh, But the disadvantages, for example, is 
there's a lot more volatility when it comes to land values. Oh, can you define volatility? So volatility is the changes in value in terms of price. Okay. So, so when a developer goes out and they've got a lot of, say, 10,000 lots, for example, they strategically release a certain number of lots uh, every, say, a c- every few months or whatever to strategically not oversupply uh, the market, yep. right? What can happen with land is sometimes, like if there's a change to the economy or whatever, in tour, because with new land estates, the land is not registered just mm. yet. You can get registered land and unregistered land. Registered land is where all the services are connected to the land and it can be ready, it, it's ready to be built on. That's gas, electricity, all that sort of stuff. Exactly. In For unregistered land, it might take two or three years um, for the land to eventually get registered. Mm. Between two to three years, like two or three years away, there's a significant period of time and like the market can change in that time or your personal like situation can change in that time. Yep. Like you're like people just assume, okay, you know, prices are eventually going to go up, but it's not always the case. Yeah. And, and w- coming back to volatility, like let's say we've got a block of land on 400 square meters and it's a thousand dollars per square meter. Mm. Right. So it's 400 K. If the per square meter rate, dropped by $50 per square meter. It will drop from $1,000 to $950 per square meter. $950 per square meter multiplied by 400 square meters is 360K. You're like a calculator. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like the, 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 la- the land would then drop from 400K down to 360K. Wow. So that's what, that's, that's what I mean in terms of volatility. And then if someone needs, if someone's in a position where they need to sell, it kind of sets a precedent for all other lands in, sure. in the area. Yep. So if someone's like, <coughs> shit, I need to, I need to sell, I need to sell this block of land, which I've just bought. I'm in a, you know, I'm, I'm not in a good financial position. Mm. I need to take a 30K, 40K discount. Suddenly mm. it just sets a precedent for oh, no. everything else. Yeah. Yep. And it's just, it just, it just avalanches like, and yeah. it's, pulls into like a, just a big heap of mess. Yeah. yeah. And also one other point was... Land also doesn't bring in any income. So you've just got land and oh, you're just yeah. servicing... You're going to pay yourself. You're ju- yeah, you're just servicing the loan, right? Mm. Whereas for a property which is already built, you, if it's an investment, for example, you can get income from day one. Mm-hmm. So I, I always kind of prefer buying an established property because you know exactly what you're working with. Mm. The disadvantages are it's a bit more, you know, a bit more expensive. Um, Like it might take a little bit longer to to buy something which is already constructed and you might not have... Whenever you build a home, for example, you can completely customise it to your taste. Whereas if you buy something which is already built, it might not be to your exact taste, but it's often a better... Like I feel like the risk, the overall risk, I feel like it's better to buy something which is already built. You know exactly yeah. what you're mm. getting I, into. I think it depends on what you want to use it for. If exactly. it's an investment, you want someone to be paying 90% of the mortgage. You know, if not, mm. you're out of pocket, 2000 yeah. a month, whatever it is. But then if it's like a house you want to live in, 
then it's maybe better to buy land because you can kind of build your dream house. So it kind of depends on what you want. But whenever you buy a house, you're buying the land anyway. So you want it to be, it's like, you know, when you're talking about places to buy investments, they talk about what's the chance it'll get rented. So if you're buying in Melton or something like, or beverage you buy yeah. in beverage you buy a house like how many people are there trying to buy house rent houses in beverage yeah people maybe want to rent in thomas so maybe it's better to buy there and that's what people talk about it's like how what's the likelihood it will get rented absolutely and that's a really really good point you touch on because a lot of people think okay i need to go out and buy you know investment property oh, it needs to be a house and in, and my only options if i've only got 500 k is to buy somewhere out on the fringe suburbs yeah yeah but like nice. you can take a little bit of a different different approach, and there's all these different types of properties as well, which are more affordable. Um, it could be, for example, like a, a, an older villa style unit. A villa style, you've probably it's pretty common in, in Reservoir. It's like back in the seventies, seventies and eighties, they'd build like a developer would go out and knock knock a house down, and they'd build like three three or four little units, mm. right? And they're all like two bedrooms. But they're like they're, they're generous in size, and like people our age can only afford to, you know, they want to be in a bit more, they want to be a bit more closer into the city, and you know, it might be four hundred dollars a week in rent, mm. and that's what they can afford to uh, afford to spend. And so those type of properties can be excellent yeah. uh, investments. I think it's a perspective we have in Australia where it's like if you go to New York, you go to America, we go to the Middle East. People live in apartments. You see six people in a family. Yeah. They live in an apartment like it's a normal thing. Us, got you have one kid, it's like a unit too small. Yeah. It's like Australia on average, I think, has like the first or second biggest houses. You know, that's something oh we wow. want. We always want to have bigger houses to fill it up with stuff. Yeah. But I wanted to hit you with some questions because then it will kind of mm. dabble onto more things. I wanted to like, like quick answers, boom, boom, boom. Because I think it's important for everyone to start, even if they don't have the finance, start thinking about houses like do i want to rent do i want to invest unit apartment but what's a good number we'll break it down unit and apartment together and then house what's a good number for people to have in their bank account before they start looking mm. and start considering is it like mm. thirty thousand is unit sixty thousand is house and then they start looking what's some numbers so people can say okay when i hit that i'll start Just some rough amounts, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a good question and it comes back to the deposit um how much someone? That was the next one, yeah. So how much <laughs> someone? How much someone actually needs to go needs to go out and buy the next property? You might you may have heard someone needs twenty percent, someone needs only ten percent, or like in some cases five percent. Like what is the actual amount? Five percent and ten percent of what the property's value? Yeah. So say for example, it's a six hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, a six hundred thousand dollar property, and you need five percent. You only need thirty k, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. There's there's a whole like I would say, five percent deposit, don't like don't go there. There's like a whole there's an attraction to going out and buying, only using a five percent deposit, but it's a, there's a lot of risk involved mm. with using only five percent. When you use a five percent deposit, say for example you've got thirty k saved up and it's a six hundred thousand dollar property. The pro- say, for example, if the property drops in value, say, 7% in one year, which which was the case in 2019. Like, well, people kind of forget that property prices mm. dropped in 2019. Like, I've saw, on average, like, prices have come down, like, 15% in that, in that period. Mm. I mean, it, then it bounced back. But it only needs... It only takes a very small portion for, like, the value to drop for you to be in a position of what's called negative equity. So this is where a negative equity position is where the 
the loan value is worth more, is it's it's higher than what the property is actually worth. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you're in a position where like if you were to sell the property and you make a you make a loss, you're owing money to the bank. Mm. Okay. If you're in that position, the bank can then target other assets which you potentially own to cover that shortfall. Wow. Okay, okay yeah. so for okay. example, I paid 600k for a house mm-hmm. and then I took out a 600k <coughs> loan but then the value of the house is like Yeah, say say for example 570k. Yeah. And now the value is 550k. Yeah. 570 minus 550 20k. You yeah. still have to pay that. You've got to you've got to come up with that shortfall Damn. to the bank. Damn. So the bank's not going to yeah. be like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. You've got to come up with that shortfall. Okay. So, so I just want to say um, with the percentage deposit, so would you say to move towards 10 and 20? Because 20, like, it doesn't, s- well, to me, just thinking about it, doesn't seem as realistic for the f- at the start. It seems pretty hard. 100%. And I think I think 20%, it'll take a lot of people too long to, to save up that, mm. that, that amount. Um. And by the time you save like between 10% to 20%, often the market increases in that period and suddenly you can't buy that particular property or location that you were initially thinking of. Mm. I'd say in most cases, it's most safest to do around 10%. Okay. But you'd need, you'd need as a minimum, but I'd suggest around 12 to 13% roughly. Okay. But also on top of that, having an emergency buffer Okay. How so much in emergency? That's a good question. So it depends on it depends on um, d- it depends on how much money or income you make. So, so it'll vary per person. However, the amount you should have, I would suggest having between three to six months of net after tax income as your emergency. So if you buffer. make a thousand a week, you have that for six months, pretty much, or three three to six months. Yeah, three to okay. six months. Okay. Just in case, for example, you lose your job or, you know, like mm. coronavirus came around and, yeah. you know, it's impacted a lot of people mm. and like you don't know what position you might be in. Like life happens and, you know, you could be in, in a position where there might not be any income for a while. Mm. So it's always like the safest thing to do and to get yourself out of a, of being put in a risky position where you may need to sell the property is to always have an emergency buffer in place just okay. in case anything happens. 10 to 15%. How about now back to like unit apartment if people are thinking for that as an option or a house, how much should they have before they start considering maybe looking into the market, you know, messaging Canon to be a buyer's advocate? <laughs> how much should they have in their bank account? That's Look, a rough estimation. It's yeah. never specific. Everyone's, you know. Yeah. I mean, you. I feel, I think it's also good to touch on like, I feel like property is sort of sub 450K they're just not good quality. So I always advocate... How about even units and apartments? Okay. The large majority is like not not good quality. Like you want to... Because there's so many people out in the market and the type of quality property that you buy for that sort of price range isn't going going to be that good. And it kind of comes back to the question of like, you know, should, should I buy, you know, one property for a million dollars or should I buy two properties for 500K? Like you're spreading your risk a little bit by diversity, like having two properties and you, you've got two separate incomes. Like that's the positive. But like I would much rather buy one good quality property for a million dollars 
than buy two shitty properties for 500k. Mm. Does that make sense? Why, yeah. why, why specifically? Uh, because there's, as you increase your budget, yep. you, the pool of buyers reduces. Yep. So there's less people you're competing, you're, you're competing with. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So as you climb up, as you as you increase your budget, right? I find you find better quality options in better better locations. So you can go out and buy buy a much better quality property than if you were to go go out and buy say say two properties which are five hundred k. They're mm. both you know one bedroom apartments and they're not they're not that good quality. They don't have that scarcity value which we talked about earlier. Okay. But there's an allure to having yeah. two properties. Yeah. yeah, and and like that's that's the thing. Like you've probably come across, you know, people on your Instagram or Facebook saying, you know, <laughs> 10, 20, 30 properties. Like uh, that's like m- maybe it may have been the case like when they first started buying in the early 2000s, but it's not the case in today's like the current climate and environment. Mm. And you also need to look at like what is the like you might own 10 or 20 properties, but what what is your actual, you know, debt position? Like you could be borrowed, you you could have 95% borrowed and have 10 properties and what can happen is and you don't hear about these stories what they do is they it's called it's a big word cross cross collateralization so what happens is they secure one property with another property and another property with yeah. another property okay so what happens if if for example they default on one loan they need it the bank can use the security of another property to cover that loss. But because all their properties are secured against each other, their entire portfolio, they need to liquidate it and they become bankrupt. Yeah. So that concept of having like 10, 20, 30 properties, like I'm a big believer. Like that's, it sounds, oh, everyone love, everyone would want or would love a passive income. Sounds like monopoly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It does sound like monopoly, mm. and like it, like everyone would love to have like some sort of passive income stream, but like what I believe in is like okay, have have a house for example, and have maybe one or two investment properties, and you know work towards eventually paying that off, and that way you can have like a like an income stream after that. Yeah, after That's twenty thirty years. Don't be say don't like be looking for five, ten, fifteen, like listening to those Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. Back to it. So yeah. you said under four hundred. You said the quality isn't the best. So ten percent of four hundred. Forty k. Forty k. So uh, when you hit around forty, you start looking, thinking about property and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And on yeah. that, so forty k is the number to start looking. Ten percent, fifteen with some emergency. How about the loan situation? Because there's fifteen, twenty year, twenty five, thirty. What's a good number? Because like I hear. You know, obviously, in different uh, Dave Ramsey says fifteen-year loan is the best, paid off as soon as you can. But some people use, like you said, the equity to buy another house and stuff like that. What would you recommend so people have a perspective when they go to, you know, wherever they go to, and say mm-hmm. twenty-five year, thirty? What's ideal? I always recommend doing a thirty-year loan because it gives you it gives you the flexibility if there's a change to your financial position. So say, for example, you know, something pops up and you need to get married or whatever and suddenly you need to, you know, save up 20 or 30 grand, right? If you have a 15-year mortgage, your 
payments are going to be double mm. than what you're going to uh, double than the amount that you'll have on a 30-year mortgage. You can still have a 30-year mortgage, but make extra repayments if you want to pay off your loan in a shorter period of time. So if your goal is, for example, to pay off a loan in 15 years, you can still do that and still have a 30-year 30 30-year 30 loan. Mm-hmm. So I always suggest just just to be on the safe side, have a have a 30-year loan, but depending on what your goals are, try and pay off that loan, for example, as quickly as possible. Okay. If you've got disposable income that you can use and you're like, you know what, let me just pay an extra month off or pay an extra couple of months off, yeah. you can do that. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. It just gives you that comfortability. Okay, now people know what they need to do to take the action. Now, if they're looking in the range, for example, you say nothing under 400. So you see a unit for 430. Yeah. You live in, that's your area. Um, you see a unit for 430. It's bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He said reservoir before. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. That's fine. Yeah, Sorry. that's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for example, you see a nice unit in your suburb for 430,000 or there's a house there for 650. And if you're in that stage where you have 40,000, 10%, you can either go for a unit or should you wait, for example, you make 1,000 a week, should you wait six months and then go for the house? Mm. You know, now it's like that kind of thing. It's like, mm. obviously, it depends on the person. Are they mm. looking for investment? Are they looking to live on? But maybe the pros and cons with buying a house, because obviously you get the land, buying a unit. So yeah, I, I look, again, it comes back to the individual and what their goals and objectives are. Like most people can't go out and buy their dream home initially, mm. right? So they either need to either buy an investment property and rent or they can buy a smaller property and then maybe consider like and maybe consider selling it and upgrading from there. Mm. So it just depends on what it depends on the individual mm. and what they're what they're after. Um, coming back to your question, I think I think it's sometimes better to to be in a position where if you're cl- if you're maybe six three to six months away from buying a much better quality property, um, I'd suggest waiting and and doing that because buying and selling property is very expensive. Yeah. For first home buyers, like sub six hundred k, you don't you don't pay any stamp duty. If it's between six hundred to seven hundred and fifty k. You pay, it's like a sliding scale on the amount of stamp duty that you pay. But in most cases, stamp duty is roughly 5% of the value of the property. Can we just... So on a million dollars, 50K. Okay, so what is stamp duty itself? Good question. So stamp duty is a one-off payment you make um, when you buy a property. It goes straight to the government as a tax. That's every property, not just yours property. This is sub 600K. That's, That's a good question. So... New, newly built, so properties which aren't built yet, so they're not built. Mm-hmm. It could be, uh, it could be, for example, an off-the-plan apartment. It could be an off-the-plan townhouse. You don't pay any stamp duty, regardless of the value. One other thing: if you're a home buyer, have if you're a any, yeah, private sellers. It doesn't. It doesn't. Same it doesn't. Thing? It doesn't, it doesn't okay. matter, regardless. Regardless of the way a property is put up for sale, doesn't really matter. Um. But yeah, coming back to it, so for new properties, you pay no stamp duty, right? Yeah. So there's a big attraction there to be like, oh, I should go out and buy, off the plan. yeah, buy buy an off the plan property. Yeah. But like from my experience, 
even like there's so there's so much due diligence that goes into buying a property that there's additional risks with buying off the plan because you're buying a property which is not yet not yet built. Yeah. So you don't know what you're getting at the end of the day, right? It's like it's al- almost like picking a picking a you know um, picking a rabbit out of a hat. Like you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. So I feel like the risks involved with buying off the plan outweigh what you could potentially save in stamp duty. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I didn't know that. I would have been like, bro, stamp duty is five percent, fifty k, bro, for a million dollar thing. <coughs> I can save that, man. Yeah. But yeah. you got to pay upfront too. So if you have the ten percent, you also owe that. So that's you a don't lot know of what you get. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. how stamp duty works is, say for example, you pay that on you pay that amount on settlement, but the stamp duty works in 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 conjunction with the loan, so it can be sort of capitalized and added on top of the loan. Mm. Maybe coming back to the deposit situation, maybe to the ten percent deposits mm. and the twenty percent. So in most cases, when if you have 20% saved up, that's enough uh, of your kind of equity or what you put into the property for the bank to be like, okay, this is this is a good, you know, this is a good uh, borrower. They've got enough saved. Mm. As soon as as soon as you as soon as the deposit um, your deposit decreases from 20%, you need to pay what's called LMI to the bank. What's LMI that? is lenders mortgage insurance. Lenders mortgage insurance is a it's an insurance policy carried out by the bank. So if the bank takes it out in case you default on your loan. Mm. Because there's more risk involved uh, if you are using a smaller smaller deposit. Now the costs of LMI, uh, it depends. It can range between say three thousand dollars upwards to fifteen thousand dollars if you're using a ten percent deposit. A year, the entire oh, just it's a one-off. Okay. It's a one-off payment. Okay. Um, and now you can that payment, you can pay that up front, or you can get that added on top of your loan. Mm. I would like what I would normally do is add that on top of add that on top of the loan instead of you know being an upfront expense. I mean, if you want to pay off your loan a little bit quicker, then then to do that. Mm. And now you might be thinking, is it better to Sorry, my phone's ringing. No, you're right. <laughs> Should have put it on silent. Now coming back to um, okay, where were we? The, the L- LMI. The LMI. Okay, LMI. Um, so one question a buyer might have is, okay, I'm spending you know five thousand dollars to fifteen thousand dollars mm. for LMI. Is it better for me to wait to save? you know, 20, like to save up to get about 20% or is it better for me to pay 5000 to $15,000 which just goes to the bank as, as insurance? Mm. I'd say in most cases, each situation is different, but in most cases it's better to pay LMI and have 10% rather than going to save up an extra 10% because what this is just generally speaking because... The time it takes for someone to save up an additional 10%, normally prices would have increased more than the cost of the LMI. So you'd be in a worse off position having to have to wait than 
to get LMI at the start. Yeah. That makes mm. sense. In the long yeah. run, it's better. Yeah. yeah. In the long run, it's better. It's better to get in kind of sooner if you can and pay to LMI. It seems like the real estate market is a very, you have to be patient. You know, like yeah. especially you want to have the 40,000 or 60,000. It's like it takes that years to kind of save up. So it's a thing where a lot of young people want to rush in. You know, and especially like we might rush and buy the wrong property because we keep hearing prices are going up, prices are going up. Buying chuganina, buying chuganina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, ha- like we said before, maybe I think 7% it went down in 2019 and then now it's going back up. Are prices going up? Are they going down? How's the market looking now? Because you're obviously in the market. That's, so that's, a, that's a really good question. And I think, I think there's all this like hype about oh, what the market's doing. Like we need to like let's try like break it down. What is what is the market and what are we actually talking about, right? Mm. Because you've got like I like to break it down into the macro, the macro market, which is like you know what's happening in the economy. Like you've got interest rates, you've got you know export imports, stock market. You've got all that. You've got the macro market, and then you've got the micro market, which is which you break it down into what's happening on like a suburb, you know, suburb level, and Mm. what's happening. Uh, what's happening within a specific sort of pricing bracket because you can get, for example, like it could be like an apartment, for example, in the city, say it's 600K and there's an oversupply of that particular property type in that market. Say the market for apartments in the city is really, really bad at the moment. Or you could just switch over to a few suburbs down and go into like Hawthorne, whereas, you know, the market's doing really, really well. Mm. for, you know, two to three million dollar properties. So whenever we talk about the market, I think it's really important to, it's important to define what, like, are we talking about the macro economy? Are we talking about, you know, what's happening on a micro, like on a micro scale? Like mm. it's it's really important to uh, define what's like, what we're actually talking about. But I know your question, like, well, overall, like, mm. what's, what's the market? But what's the market? Like, what's the overall? If we have to yeah. be real, I'm not looking at Hawthorne 3 million. So maybe yeah. better if we talk about, like, um, like, I don't know, like, where we, like, reservoir yeah. onwards. You know, like, something yeah. where it's, like, 600,000, maybe you save that in a couple of years. I'm not looking at million-dollar properties. Mm-hmm. So maybe something like that. Like, these Thomastown, um, mm-hmm. wherever this guy's Chuganina. from. Yeah. La- like, Laylor, Thomastown, <laughs> Faulkner. Yeah. Like, like, like you Areas know, that are affordable to people under 30. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Name. I think, um, I think what buyers, one of the biggest mistakes buyers make is trying to time the market. Right, they might mm. be ready to buy, but they're just like, oh, thinking, oh, the market might drop, and they're listening to what's happening in the media to determine their buying decision. Mm. The reality is, nobody can accurately predict where the market is going to going to go. I don't care if you're like a, uh, even me, like <laughs> I've I've got it wrong. Yeah. Like like mm. for example, uh, end of um, end of 2019, I'm like, okay, the market's recovering a little bit. But then coronavirus came came around, and mm. I thought the outlook for, uh, like I thought prices were going to come down fifteen twenty percent, mm. or potentially even more because of the because of the effects of uh, the virus on the economy. Yep. But the market did the complete opposite, right? It went up mm. like twenty twenty percent mm. in a given period, and so like it 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 just gave me like a reality check. Like I don't know what's I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Yep. So instead, what you should do as a buyer, like you should go out when you're when you're ready to buy, 
go out no. and yeah. Message Kenan. Go to Kenan with yeah. <laughs> and then he'll tell you if you're ready or not. Yeah, like you should <laughs> you should go you should go when you're actually, you know, ready to buy. And I think the best like nobody wants to go out and spend seven hundred K and then for values to come down in twelve months time to six hundred K. Nobody mm. wants that. And that's like that's understandable. But there's ways you can reduce risk going into the purchase. Like you should go in with the intentions of holding property for at least three to five years. Like I believe property is a long-term, a, a bit more of a long-term uh, thing because buying and selling property is expensive. Mm. So 5% of the value to stamp duty and 2% of the value to the real estate agent when you sell. Mm. So there's an evaporation of value between 7 to 8%. <coughs> Yep. So, it's so by taking a long term approach, any sort of market fluctuations which happen in the meantime do, do, doesn't really matter if you are looking, looking, looking at property for mm. the long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I I don't think I st- I don't think I answered your question. Uh, go for it. Yeah. So coming Just back to was it the market? Like, is it a good time to buy? Is the prices going up? You know, like my my. F- what the market is going to do, I think in the next, uh, this is my kind of prediction, I guess, for the next 12 months, what's happening now is credit is becoming a little bit more difficult to uh, obtain. Mm. So banks are tightening up their their sort of lending criteria a little bit. So traditionally, you'd go out and borrow, say, 750k. But now because the bank's tightening their restrictions a little bit, you can only borrow 700k. So now what now what buyers are doing cuz what buyers do they just go out and they max out <laughs> they, whatever the bank mm-hmm. will whatever um, this is a common mentality a lot of people have whatever the bank will lend me that's my budget and what I'm going to go out and spend is this why they're increasing the res- restrictions within the banks because people are like just spending on like the max amount they can I think uh, I think so there's a governing body called APRA and they're like the they're like the big boss for the banks okay. And there's, they get a bit of pressure whenever housing prices increase, or there's a bit of like um, uh, loose restrict, like loose lending policies within the bank. They come in and they, they kind of tighten or loosen. And like whenever there's a tightening or loosening of lending restrictions, that normally has a direct flow-on effect into the market because a lot of people are borrowing ninety percent. Yeah, a lot of people. So, so, so because the way a, the way a um, the way a loan or the way a the way a property um, the 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 structure of a property um, getting carried away. Um, <laughs> so the way a property um, so the structure of a particular property is you've got the loan and you've got the deposit. Most people go out and have ten or fifteen percent, and then the remainder is serviced by the loan, which is about might be ninety or eighty-five percent. So whenever there's a change in the lending, what happens in the lending environment, normally that has a direct flow-on effect into the market because it's 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 a larger portion of what um, someone's going out to to spend, right? So it's about eighty percent. So that eighty percent gets affected, mm. which has an effect on what they can go out and spend Future on. Buyers, yeah. And you multiply that like across, like, because it affects everyone. Mm. Yeah. 
So in the next 12 months, <laughs> to answer your question, in the next 12 months, the market's going to slightly cool down a little bit. We're not going to see like what we saw this year with like 15, 20% yeah. price increases. Um, the market's going to cool down slightly, potentially like balancing out sort of next year. Yeah. But it comes back to yeah. like also like the type of property yeah. and which suburb and whatever, but generally speaking. Yeah. I think you guys have to stop listening to your uncle and eat lunch because <laughs> your uncle always says, I know the market, you got to listen to me. But I wanted to end the episode on the uncle's advice, which normally doesn't work out. What are some bad advice you hear people make? You know, you talk to a lot of young people, you see a lot of buyers. What's some advice or um, common things you hear people say that are just bad and should not be listened to? You know, anything come to mind? Bad advice. Um, yeah. I think. I think just listening, listening to the wrong, wrong people. Like every, like there seems to be like an expert, like yeah. a, some sort of property expert everywhere you turn to, and a lot of people like it's so hard for the customer to get, you know, reliable and you know trustworthy information because there's always like an agenda behind, you know, the type of information that person is giving, right? Mm. Like. For example, uh, you can get some experts saying now's the right time to buy, buy an investment property, properties are going to go up and, you know, it, it kind of drives you to make that decision. Mm. So, like, but based on their experience, so you're saying they're probably, like, more adamant on telling people to buy investments because they had a good experience recently. Where yeah. It's, where in that case, it's not for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Or like they could have, or they could have like an incentive behind it, where yeah, they're selling some sort true. of, um, some sort of program. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you love the Instagram real oh. estate guys, yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. they could have an incentive behind it. So I think, I think what a buyer needs to do is to start getting. Uh, they need to start developing their knowledge base and skills mm. in property. And how do they do Segway that? that Let's go. Let's get, where can people find you? Okay. So, so <laughs> maybe I can get I can, I can <laughs> smooth transition. We can. I, this is why I call uh, created property skills. So at Instagram and Facebook, or where can people find it? <laughs> on Instagram, fa Facebook is coming soon. So it's like the the cost of using a buyer's advocate is out of reach for a lot of people. A buyer's advocate would normally charge one and a half to two percent of the property purchase price. Mm. So, we'll go for a million dollars to make it easy. <laughs> so on a on a million dollars, that's between sixteen thousand to twenty two thousand dollars. Like, and people have already tried so hard to save up for a deposit for their deposit, mm. but it's out of reach for many people. Mm. So, over the past three years, I've been working on creating a program where all my knowledge and experience in buying property is condensed into 11 hours of content where it's in a step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step format so the, so the buyer can level up their skills and go out and buy the right property. Mm -hmm. So it's like an investment. It's like an investment for them to, you know, become like from a property noob to like a property pro. Yeah. yeah. And people will buy that off you and save thousands for making mistakes. And that's where you have to kind of invest in that so you don't make a silly mistake. So quote do you say if you learn off somebody else's mistakes? You say it, bro. I know the quote. It's better to I th yeah, I think um, it's not only like saving, like you could save on making like without making like a costly mistake or you can potentially save 
you know, tens of thousands of dollars in a negotiation, right? Mm. And you know, like I direct in a step-by-step way exactly how to, you know, approach a particular situation. Definitely. You know, I go into like, you know, is now the right time to buy for your personal situation? Yeah. Should you focus mm-hmm. on a home or investment? Yeah. You know, what's yeah. the right structure to buy the property in? What, like understanding finances, yeah. like understanding how home loans work. Yeah. Like how do you even know like how home loan wor- works and the different types of loans available? And you've sequenced it so like people know from what position to know it from. Like do you know what I mean? Like Abs- chronologically, absolutely. And it goes into like a like a beginner beginner friendly yeah. level. I know like thank God. <laughs> I know throughout today it was like some of the concepts. It was a little bit like high level, and it's hard for me to kind of uh, drop it down to like a beginner level, but I've really broken it down to into like a beginner step by step um, format, which touches into like like what your principal place of residence might be, or what's capital gains tax, you know, what's negative gearing, and going to like each different type of property that you can buy, and you know what's the advantages and disadvantages if you're buying it as a home or an investment, choosing the right location, whether it's your home or investment again, how to go out and search for properties how to get access to the pre-market and off-market properties, mm. um, how to develop a, re- a relationship w- with the real estate agent, but at the mm. same time, protecting your protecting your best interests so yeah. the agent doesn't, you know, extract a higher um, price out, of, out from mm. you. And how to actually go out and carry out due diligence. Yeah. Like how to go out and work out what a property is worth. How to go out and, you know, make sure that there's no sort of hidden mistakes in the background. Yeah. And then creating a strategy okay you know what's the best approach to going out and purchasing this property should i put in a offer prior to auction you know should i go out and wait to auction and see what happens yeah. or or you know it could be a boardroom auction situation like what's a boardroom auction so like? pretty much every question people would want to know the answer to you answered it for them yeah all at a small fraction of the cost of using using <laughs> a buyer's advocate so just making it making a, 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 a making it as an affordable option for you know, yeah. people like you and you and I, we and it'll be coming out soon. So we'll be shouting that out, guys. Yeah, yeah. We need one of those for mechanics. That's what we need. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's mechanics. Mechanics. I'm yeah. telling you, because this, I'm hearing it all, and you're like, okay, yeah, you can kind of get away. I'm like, okay, wait a second. So what you're doing is you're yeah. you're kind of like exposing the real estate agents for the things that they're gonna cover, and on top of that, also you're educating people. So this will help people, even if you're not looking to buy a home in the near future. It's good to know. It's good knowledge to have for purchasing in obviously mm. the long term. Even helping your mate, you you might save your mate ten k by just saying, "Hey, did you do this?" Oh, I didn't even know. Yeah, so it's yeah. a good thing to do, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it's like skills that you can, you know, carry on for the rest of your life. Mm. Like you can. It's not only because you need to use an advocate. You know, on each property, it's like say fifteen k. Mm. Mm. Whereas you know, you've developed your own property skills. You can carry up, carry that out. You know. Mm. So no, no, many. That means your bias advocate can't trick you <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely, yeah. yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Yeah. No, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, I'm right. just it. dropping gems left I'm, and right. I'm, uh, I'm honoured to be on be a part of the show. And um, yeah, thanks for we having appreciate me. appreciate it. Don't forget to like and subscribe the video. And don't trust your real estate agent. Have a good day. <laughs>